America has been concerned about destructive cyber attacks for decades. The obvious solution has always been for Washington and tech companies to join forces in some sort of public-private partnership. We've been talking about it since 2003, when Richard Clark had the first uh, strategy to secure cyberspace in the U.S. Richard Clark was on the National Security Council during the Bush administration. And the idea does have a certain logic. The National Security Agency and Cyber Command often have intelligence about attacks either before or while they're happening. And cybersecurity companies have the tools and expertise to block them. Even so, the idea never really got off the ground. It seemed like every six years there was another effort to, uh, to get it going again. That's Art Coviello. He used to be the CEO of RSA Security, a network security company that was all about encryption. Now he runs a venture capital firm that invests exclusively in cybersecurity companies. So six years pass. Enter the Obama administration. We meet today uh, at a transformational moment, a moment in history when our interconnected world presents us at once with uh, great promise, uh, but also great peril. Uh, 2009, Obama did a 60-day study. A 60-day study to look at public-private partnerships. And then the North Koreans hacked Sony Pictures. Billboards, once advertising the movie that took comedic aim at the North Korean dictator, now covered up. Many are asking, are we simply giving in to the hackers? President Obama sanctioned Kim Jong-un, did a little stealthy hackback, and then brought a bunch of leaders from the tech world to a summit at Stanford University to talk about, you guessed it. We will strengthen the public-private partnerships that are critical to this endeavor. The upshot was we should have a public-private partnership and nothing ever happened. And then, finally, this past February, the whole public-private partnership thing actually took off. But here's the surprise. The government the tech world is partnering with isn't in Washington. It's in Kyiv. I'm Dina Templerest, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, what does it take to make a public-private partnership happen? After years of discussion, a handful of tech executives in the West just took matters into their own hands. We have an exclusive look at what they're doing. This feels like a cyber Marshall plan. Is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, I think, I think it is. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. 
Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Volodymyr Pavelko was at a business meeting in the Carpathian Mountains when Russian tanks began to roll into Ukraine. February 24th at 5 o'clock, I was woken up by my uh, daughter, my elder daughter, and she she was crying that, uh, yes, it has begun. I'm from Irpin. That's a suburb of Kyiv. You see that uh, we have been expecting it for months already. We have been living in uh, such situation for years, at least from 2014. Such situation. He means a quasi-war footing for nearly a decade. 2014 is when Russia began the annexation of Crimea. And then, just before Christmas, a year later, Russian hackers did something no other hacking group had ever done before. They took down a power grid. Parts of the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, went dark. A quarter of a million people lost power for as long as six hours. With a click. And it was the middle of winter. Fast forward to Ukraine today. I'm trying to get warming, yeah. No electricity. That's Volodymyr again. He says Americans just call him Vol. And when we first started talking to him last month, he was sitting in a book-lined office wearing a beautiful fur-lined vest. Yeah, it's from Carpathian Mountains, from uh, special animals, yeah, who are giving uh, their warmth to us, yeah. When we caught up with him again a few weeks later, the power situation hadn't improved much. So we, we don't have uh, electricity for 12 hours per day. Do you have a generator? Yes, I have. Ah. But unfortunately, the generator doesn't work with all electricity equipment. So uh, okay. electrician, this is my second profession right now. <laughs> How are you doing? Uh, very badly, because <laughs> I'm not a technical guy. Not a technical guy, he says. Which is ironic, because he's the co-founder and CEO of a Ukrainian think tank called the Global Cyber Cooperative Center, or GC3, which is all about cyber and technology. Which is founded in Ukraine to be connected globally. And one of his jobs is to help the Ukrainian government partner with tech companies to better defend against cyber attacks. The thinking over the years now has been that if Russia was willing to turn out the lights in 2015, it probably wouldn't hesitate to do so again, particularly now that there's a war. Given that history, the Ukrainian government had been paying special attention to the country's largest state-owned oil and gas company, something called Naftagas. You know, Naftagas is a very large organization that... Greg Rattray used to be the chief information security officer at J.P. Morgan Chase. He's retired Air Force. And before the war, he'd been working with Ukraine to develop a cyber strategy. They were focused on how to protect infrastructure and companies like Naftagas. And they are a large target with significant exposure because to perform their mission and to do it and to use technology to do so creates a big attack surface. In other words, if Russia were to attack Naftagas and manage to take the company offline, it could have enormous consequences. People wouldn't get oil or gas or electricity, which could explain why months before the tanks rolled in, Naftagas was already bracing for impact. Vol, sitting in his house in a furry vest, thought GC3, his public-private partnership, could help. 
It was the Ukrainian version of one of those old Brooklyn deals. He knew a guy who knew a guy who might know some other people who could lend a hand. It turns out that around the same time that Ball began looking for extra help protecting NAFTA gas and other critical infrastructure in Ukraine, Greg Rattray was looking for ways he could help. I think the invasion was on a Thursday. On the Monday following, I started to call people. Greg had been working with the Ukrainians on a national cybersecurity project since 2020. So he knew people in the Ukrainian government. And he also knew players in the U.S. cybersecurity and threat intelligence community. So he asked if maybe they could get together. They all were very positive. It wasn't presented as a public-private partnership as much as a call for help. Art Coviello, Kevin Mandia, the CEO of Mandiant, threat intelligence companies like Looking Glass and Recorded Future, software giants like Microsoft. The list of people who said, sign me up, kept getting longer. I think it was easier because of the sort of clear transgressions of the Russians of people's basic values, right? And that for what I'm doing, it's mostly involving security companies. And the Ukraine was a place where people were willing to volunteer, you know, quickly to try to figure out what could be done. Mm -hmm. Did that surprise you? It, it, it surprised me in a good way. Just sort of, Greg, we're there. Let's figure out, you know, let's figure out how to do it the right way. They started calling themselves the Cyber Defense Assistance Collaborative, or CDAC. And they began talking about how they could provide commercially available threat intelligence platforms or licenses and services and advice. So someone who knew someone who knew someone introduced Greg Duvall. And this new cyber posse found a partner. And then four months into the war, Greg and Vol found themselves sitting around a makeshift conference table in midtown Manhattan. The view was vintage New York. Empire State Building, Penn Station, Hudson Yards. And the roll call of attendees included members of the Ukrainian cyber police, Ukrainian government officials, and representatives from NAFTA gas. There were up to six, seven people from U.S. side, but online there were a dozen more. It was supposed to be a short stop so short that they brought their suitcases with them, rolling them out of the elevators and parking them in the corner of the conference room. So after the acquaintances, we began to share the present situation, what we have, what challenges do we have, and what kind of need do we need. One of the representatives from Naftagas kicked it off, and his list of particulars was dire. There were old-fashioned kinetic attacks. Data centers were bombed. But uh, after several days and when the kinetic war became more severe, uh, they, they began to expect the same in cybersphere. Denial of service attacks, Russian hackers lurking in networks. Have you thought about mobile data centers, one of the American tech executives asked. Instead of housing your servers in a building, a mobile data center has all that in a standard shipping container. Think of it as an IT center in a box, essentially. They're harder to find, so harder to bomb. Then the Mandiant representative piped up. Do you guys have attack surface monitoring or endpoint detection? That's like a home alarm for your network. If someone who isn't supposed to be in there breaks in, it lets you know. 
Endpoint detection tracks anything in your network that touches the internet, sort of like putting tripwires on doors and windows. The discussion continued this way for hours, and it slowly dawned on Vol and the delegation that the very thing they never dreamed could happen actually did. They threw a Hail Mary pass, and CDAC caught it. After our meeting, I felt for sure that our collaboration will come to another level. A lot of people are standing together with Ukraine. A few days after that meeting, Mandiant contacted Naftagas. They offered to take a look at their networks. And what they found surprised them all. Stay with us. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Ron Bashar is the chief technology officer at Mandiant. It's a cybersecurity company owned by Google now. And just a few days after the New York meeting, he called Naftagas and asked if they'd want some hunt teams to come look at their networks. We want to go find out what's happening, right? Bouchard said given that Russia had turned out the lights in Ukraine in 2015, there was a general sense that they were probably lurking in Naftagas's networks, possibly wanting to do it again. The trick was finding them. So let's say you have one you know, energy sector victim. It's likely that others have been targeted, right? When people in cyber talk about hunt teams or doing network sweeps, they're talking about deploying special software programs that survey a potential crime scene at breakneck speed. Think of it as the cyber version of looking for signs of a break-in, dusting for prints, looking to see if something was stolen, and most importantly, whether anything, like malicious code, has been left behind. So we just do that across thousands and thousands of systems very, very rapidly. And if we see, you know, something from that sweep, we will then pivot to that system and then do a further deep dive of that system. And that is kind of... The- in the early days of the war, Russian hacking teams had put a number of slow-burn, low-grade attacks in motion all over the country, not just targeting nafta gas. There were things that were more irritating than sophisticated or destructive. Things like erasing hard drives or hobbling authentication systems so employees couldn't log in. So we got engaged with many of those in the early days just as a, hey, we need help. We need to understand, A, how this, what's happening, and B, how to to fight it, right? How to to make it stop. Cybersecurity experts will tell you that hunt teams solve puzzles. This thing is happening, so why is it happening, and where is it coming from? And the puzzle for Ron and the team at Naftagas was this. The network perimeter, the walls around their computer systems, looked solid and secure. But somehow, wiper malware kept reappearing in their systems. Passwords and logins were being stolen. They could see it was happening, but they couldn't explain why. And then it dawned on them. They were thinking about this all wrong. Well, you you have to adopt a military mindset of, you know... What's different about defending computer networks during a war, Ron realized, is that the perimeter you think you secured is always changing. You know, in eastern parts of the country, as Russia was taking territory, they were obviously occupying critical facilities, right? Which include Critical facilities like, like Naftagas data centers or local telecoms and ministry offices. So we were able to definitively point to 
you know, systems, IP addresses that were physically located in captured territory where we were seeing these attacks coming from. Sometimes the attacks looked like they were coming from inside Naftigas, not because they had breached the perimeter, but because... Russia was coming from inside the building, right, or inside the network because they had physically captured that data center or that system so they could plug in their own systems and continue... Then they could attack other parts of Naftigas. like you're dealing with almost like an insider threat. So they adjusted. If you know they're about to fall, right, if you're, if you're retreating from a certain province or a certain city, um, you know, we were starting to recommend that, um, you know, you start to segment those, um, those systems off of the network before they um, fell into enemy hands. Naftigas told employees to contact supervisors if their towns were overrun by Russian soldiers so their access to the network could be cut. And employees did just as they were told. Vol from the GC3 think tank said people in towns that were occupied would literally call Naftigas as they were fleeing. Just five minutes after he uh, uh, left the checkpoint, he made a call to his supervisor. Once that kind of reporting started happening and Naftigas could adjust perimeter security to reflect events on the ground, Ron said the mysterious insider threats went away. Of course, these are all things that you learn on the fly, in the moment. Sometimes conflict has to happen for the creative solutions to appear in response. The Ukrainians have been fighting a low-grade cyber war with Russia for almost a decade, so they had the basics. And Greg and Vol and the members of CDAC's cyber posse just upgraded them. Look, I mean, the, the Ukrainians have had a capability. I mean, the fact that a lot of, a lot of companies had development sites in, in Ukraine speaks to the technical capability and, and the education that, that was available there. This is Art Coviello again, the one who had been part of the public-private partnership talks for decades. They just had never had the opportunity or perhaps the financial resources to invest in their own defenses as we have here in the U.S. These days, more than two dozen members of CDAC convene meetings once a week. Vol acts as a bridge between Ukrainian officials and the U.S. tech world, collecting lists of what Ukraine needs, presenting them at virtual meetings, and then the cyber posse tries to find someone who can help. Licenses, technical solutions, and consultations till today on the free-of-charge base. Back in 1948, President Truman offered a ravaged Europe a hand. As I made a statement a while ago, wars never settle problems. They only create new ones. That's President Truman talking about the Marshall Plan. In Europe, nearly all the countries were torn up and devastated and destroyed. Same thing with That was largely a cash operation. The collaborative helping Ukraine isn't offering money. It's donating technology and volunteering know-how. And it all began with a few phone calls. A guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy in a furry vest who knew someone else who was willing to help. Uh, the spirit which was in the room uh, that time um, showed us that a lot of people are standing together with Ukraine. And this could be a model for public-private partnerships going forward. The question is whether you need a crisis or a war to do it. 
This is Click Here. By now, we've all been told not to click on links we don't recognize or open email attachments from strangers. That's Cyber Hygiene 101. But scammers can be creative and crafty. Take the scam that is making the rounds now. It combines stealthy malware with good old-fashioned phone calls. Click here's Will Jarvis explains. John Fokker spends his days hunting cyber criminals online. He's the head of threat intelligence at a cybersecurity company called Trellix. And, and this is just a funny story. And uh, oh, she's going to hate me for this, but this is going to be funny. Uh, the she in this case is John's mother-in-law. I came to Christmas and she says like, oh, John, yeah, I installed McAfee. McAfee. It makes antivirus and security software. I was like, really? Oh, let me see. And I was like, there's no McAfee installed in this computer. I was like, do you have an invoice? Where did you get it from? And uh, she's like, yeah, yeah, I really paid for it, McAfee. And I looked at the invoice and I was like, this is fraud. Turns out his mother-in-law had gotten an email, allegedly from McAfee, that said all she had to do is call a number. So she did. Obviously, the person at the phone was really helpful, and they did a Netstock scan, and they said there was everything wrong, which was just benign network traffic. But how could she know? They said it was bad, and she believed them. Then she paid them by credit card to fix what was wrong, beef up her security, get her some new software. And, and they played it really well because it was around Christmas. And on Christmas Eve, they called her saying that there was something wrong and they need to up the license model. And she was like, no, I'm preparing this Christmas dinner, so uh, bye. John's mother-in-law had been scammed. The story has a relatively happy ending. They got the charges reversed. John cleaned up her computer. Nice to have a cybersecurity guy in the family. But John's mother-in-law is not alone. Old school phone scams with modern malware mixed in are on the rise. So much that last month, John and his team at Trellix released a report about one of them, something they dubbed Bizarre Call. It gets its name from Bizarre Loader, a backdoor that's often used to deploy malware onto a computer system. It's very interesting to see it, like linking uh, the call center aspect towards deploying malware. It's humanizing it, but at the same time, it's, it's, a, it's an evolution in building the con. It begins, as most scams do, with the bait. For example, victims might get an email from someone pretending they're from Geek Squad saying, thanks for your payment. The invoice has the victim's email on it and a helpful number to call. And certain people are very susceptible to say like, hey, I want to figure out how this works. And they feel like if they call a phone number and if it's a 1-800 number, they feel like, okay, this is legit. I'm calling the company because I need to rectify this false invoice. No sketchy link, nothing to double click. But when John's team started digging into it, Following up on some of those emails and calling those 800 numbers, they discovered this was no fly-by-night operation. It's almost like you're looking at Ocean's Eleven when they're talking about the different cons. This is the same way. Here's how it works. The victim dials up a call center. Then, a little ruse. You are at position two in this queue. Please wait to be connected. Customer support, how may I help you? And when the victim asks to cancel the subscription they didn't want, the call center says, happy to help. But then they ask, are you sure you want to do that? It goes through all these stages of emotions, like, oh, no, no, but, but it's important to have security stuff. Do you really want to proceed? It really makes you feel as a victim, it makes you kind of feel that you're in control. But that's the whole art of the con. Trellix wouldn't release any of the audio they got during their research. 
But you can find a lot of examples of people trying to expose the scam on YouTube, like this one. It says access now, start free trial, or download now. Yes, exactly. But why do I have to download it to cancel? The call center employee, someone hired out by the cybercriminals, tries to work his magic. Well, how, how, do I, how, how do I know this isn't a scam? Everything is in front of your own eyes. Okay, you got an email from us and it, it Yeah, but I could I might be able to download this program and then you can gain access to my computer. <laughs> how it how it possible? How is it possible? The scammer asks. But then he slips. No, so you do know so you do know about programs that let you take over people's computers. So how do I know this is not that? Uh -huh. Do you want to do it? You can do it otherwise. No, I want you to refund it and cancel it. The scammer hangs up. <laughs> Mission accomplished. As for who's behind this, John Fokker from Trellix says they think there's a link between Bizarre and a ransomware group he follows called Conti. They're Russian. I wouldn't be surprised that there's a strong uh, former Soviet Union country and Russian connection who, who are eventually behind the scenes making the play. For now, John is hoping to spread the word to watch out for Bizarre Call. And he's holding on to those scammer tapes for the company Christmas party. We have them for safekeepings, and on our Christmas party, we can play them uh, on a loud stereo uh, across our team. I'm Will Jarvis, and this is Click Here. Joe's on the mark. Here are some of the top cyber and intelligence stories of the past week. The European Commission proposed a new cybersecurity policy aimed at helping member states coordinate their cyber defenses. It calls on members to beef up their investments in modern military cyber defenses. And the European Commission has said it will set up computer emergency response teams, known as CERS, and begin developing EU cyber defense exercises. Ukraine, which has been battling Russia in cyberspace for years, already has a CERT. The Australian Federal Police say they've identified the hackers behind the ransomware attack on Medibank, one of Australia's largest insurers. The police commissioner told journalists that their intelligence suggests a group of loosely affiliated cyber criminals were likely responsible. He didn't name any specific group. Medibank said it wouldn't succumb to any ransom demands, even though the hackers appear to have gained access to 9.7 million current and former Medibank customers including 1.8 million people living abroad. The data includes sensitive healthcare information for about half a million people, and the information includes details about drug addiction treatments and abortions. The Australians have launched something called Operation Guardian, an effort to scour the dark web to find and identify people who are accessing the Medibank information and trying to profit from it. And finally, an alleged member of the notorious Lockbit ransomware gang has been arrested in Canada and is being extradited to the United States. According to a statement from the Justice Department, Mikhail Vazilev, a 33-year-old Russian and Canadian national living in Ontario, is in custody on charges related to Lockbit attacks. The Justice Department unsealed a criminal complaint filed in New Jersey. DOJ said his arrest came after a three-year investigation into the group. He's facing a roster of charges, including conspiracy to intentionally damage protected computers and the transmission of ransom demands. If convicted, he faces a maximum sentence of five years in prison.
Click Here is a production of The Record by Recorded Future. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, your host, writer, and executive producer. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director, and Will Jarvis is our producer and helps with the writing. Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski are our editors. Darren Angram is our back checker. And Ben Levingston composes our theme and other music in the episode. And we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. And connect with us by email. Click here at recordedfuture.com or on our website at clickhereshow.com. I'm Dina Temple Reston, and we'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.